Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? So what's in Death Valley? Oh, nothing. It's like a desert wasteland. Um, just We're just going camp. <laughs> Are you going to go read a bunch of existentialist literature? <laughs> I, I mean, the, the name is the worst, but it's actually pretty, it's like really, really beautiful. But they call it Death Valley because I guess in the summers, people die there all the time. Yeah. But it's not summer, so we should be okay. Um, You're going it, camping, is that what you said? Okay. Yeah. Now, I don't really see you as much of a camper, but. You know, I am not. Here's what I like about camping. I like Right. There's something about not having any access to cell phones and stuff that I do actually appreciate. Yeah. However, um, camping is one of those things where it's like, I like it and I, yeah, I like it and I hate it. Um, but I, I think it's, I do feel better also connecting with nature and I've been hiking, yeah. but the hiking trails, um, are closed for fires or they're closed for COVID. So it has been like, there's like no way to connect with nature. So the beaches I've been going to, but the beach also is freezing, you know, not freezing is very dramatic is cold in, in the, in the, so anyway, I'm looking for ways to try to connect. And we bought all this camping gear (laughs) last time we went camping. So I'm like, well, let's use it. So we're going to go, it could be a total disaster, but it could be nice. I don't know. No, it's not going to be a disaster. It's going to it's going to be great. I just I I love camping. I just um I would have I imagined know. you saying that you would Well, I have a a little trinket dish that someone gave me that says I love not camping. So <laughs> you are not the only person, but you know what? I do love a hotel more than I love camping. So Well, yeah. I mean, that go. that's a given. Camping is a lot of work. I mean, it's a lot of like getting the gear bringing the gear packing the gear unpacking the gear unpacking the gear washing the gear keeping track of the i mean bears and all this shit i guess in death valley you don't have to worry about bears and maybe you don't have to worry about anything besides snakes it's snakes it's literally snakes so if i get bit by a snake whatever it is what it is um um (laughs) are you afraid of snakes no, oh, okay. but I'm just saying like, yeah, if you get bit, look, if you go, if you're, if you're sort of um, willing to take the risk of going camping in a place called Death Valley where it's caught with, with snakes, if you get bit by a snake, it's your fault. Okay. But here's what I want to do either in Death Valley or someplace like that. I want to do San Pedro or Ayahuasca. What's that? Oh, you don't know? It's like peyote light. I'll do it. Let's do it. That would be yeah, hilarious. Man. I there's this hilarious story that I heard on a podcast about somebody who who did it and and there was like this you have to do it with this person who has it so you you know so there's this lady, she's the San Pedro lady and she and you, you're supposed to bring something to eat, but then you're doing it with people that you don't know because it's just like whoever signs up for the, for this thing. And then I guess what happened was as she was giving the explanation to everybody, she said, 
I'm going to decide whether or not I'm going to do it based on how you guys are all doing. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think immediately feels like, are you cool enough, you know, for me to, and like 15 minutes into it, I guess she was like, I'm not going to (laughs) do struck with you. And then that made this person who was telling the story, like really anxious that maybe she was doing the trip wrong. You know what I mean? Like you could, you could turn, turn your mind to think that you were doing a hallucination wrong. (laughs) I mean, the mind is so powerful that it's like, I mean, I have a, yeah, I took acid and went to, um, in high school and went camping and met a family, Gina. So I was with these idiot people and we, and we took acid and we went to this place in Illinois and, um, we met this family and they were really large people, all of them, just large people. And I said, Oh, what's your name? And I swear to God, they said, (laughs) we're the lard family. (laughs) And I said, and I'm sure they didn't because I was tripping, but like, I was like, what? They're like, and I'm sure they were like Larson or something, but they were like, and I heard we're the lard family. And I thought, that's the craziest thing I've ever, this is, cra- I, I, but I couldn't, you know, I was on it. I couldn't like let on, but I'm sure I did let on. But the thing that I didn't like about acid besides, you know, crazy family names was that um, it made me really angry. Really? Yeah. Like really, um, like, like that. Uh, mushrooms did not do that. Okay, so what's interesting to me about that is that <laughs> just recently we were talking about the fact that like your mom was a rageaholic, and so you don't you don't tend toward anger. In fact, I, I don't think I've ever seen you angry. Oh, not in the way that I feel angry like ninety percent of the time. <laughs> that's funny so i mean so like huh that's a that's an interesting thing to ponder oh i was angry and i i I had yeah and i think that that's where my um my love for true crime also comes in is like there is one thing about serial killers like they allow themselves to be angry you know yeah they're fully owning their (laughs) their they really they really go for it they really go for it (laughs) What if like on one of these, you know, trials, the guy's like, listen, I grew up in a house where I really couldn't express my anger and that is not healthy. And, you know, say what you will about my killing. I am not angry anymore. Hey, let me run this by you. So recently... Um, I wrote this, I had this like great thought and I wrote it down and now I'm looking at it going, wait, what does that mean? (laughs) Okay. So I was talking to somebody about this thing that I have certainly done a lot in the past and that I'm working hard to not do anymore, which is, um, curtailing myself, like not being fully, whatever, because it's uh, not comfortable for the other person or, you know, I've done all of this like psychological jujitsu to figure out, you know, exactly who this other person wants me to be and then be that person. 
and then feel resentful that that person is asking me to be that way. And then usually what ends up happening if it's a friendship is that I just end the relationship with, and then they, and then they're completely, you know, surprised. Um, so I had this thought that doing that, the process of hide, I don't, curtailing is not the right word. I can't think of the right word, like of hiding yourself, of, of, um, of just not, not being your full authentic self is kind of like multi-level marketing because there's no end user. Like if you're just always being this other version Mm-hmm. of yourself that another person wants you to be mm-hmm. hmm, i'm losing the thread of how i connected it no but I, I i i actually get it it never will end and it also um isn't it isn't okay there's two things going on one i relate completely because every relationship i was in with a man i did this and then when they broke up with me i thought or when it ended i thought but you never knew the real me i sabotaged this whole thing so with multi you know right and multi-level marketing is you never really know what the for me what i'm hearing is too is like you never really know what the real deal is like yes is it, is it that you want me to buy this product and believe in it? Or you just want to get more people under oh, you? you? I go. think I just remember what it is. So right. if, if, if in a multi-level marketing thing, you're always trying to, to move up the chain and then they're always, cha- you know, changing the parameters so that so, to keep the people at the top being the only people who are, who are making the money. If you're constantly, you know, um, changing who you are, uh, presumably you're doing that for for an end. Like somewhere in the back of your mind, think you think if I do this, then they'll like me, or, or if Absolutely. I do this, then, and and you keep doing the thing that doesn't work because, well, I mean, you do that because you're codependent because you're raised in a codependent family system, but there's no end user. There's there's no you at the end that says, oh. Well, so you you lived a full life, and now you have the and you have the variety of these experiences, and so congratulations. You know what I mean? Like it, right. it ended up just feeling to me like this is such a scam that I've right. been perpetuating on other people and myself. Absolutely, to this not is, own it. Right? This is that is absolutely absolutely right on, and I have a like the quintessential story about that. So I dated this guy, right? He was, he was the guy I met on the airplane when I was drinking heavily. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Great. Um, looked great on paper. Harvard lacrosse player lived in, was like lived in Long Beach was, you know, living his life. And we met on a plane. Anyway, I did the thing that I always did, which was who does he want me to be? Who does he want me to be? Who does he want me to be? Okay. This went on for a year, right? We were like not dating. It wasn't a real relationship of any, but we, he really liked me, but really what he liked was me as a friend. Like if we're totally honest and I, and, and I pushed it and pushed it and it got romantic and it got, but look, it takes two to, as my coworker used to say, it takes two um, to tangle. <laughs> but, um, but but I'm owning my part, which was I did the contortion. I was like, it was crazy what I was doing. The jujitsu trying to become who I thought he wanted me to be. Right. Okay. Okay. 
finally, the only way I was broken free, the only way I, I broke free and that he broke me free was said to me, literally the words out of his mouth were, you could do anything and I still wouldn't be in love with you. You could, wow. and it was brutal, but man, it was the first time in my life I ever really heard it. And I was like, oh, oh, I can't win. I, I can't, which is great because what that means is I don't have to keep doing like, oh, he said, you could gain weight. You could lose weight. You could dye your hair. You could. And I was like, all the things, you know, all the things. And he said, he said that. And I was like, oh my God. And it was painful as hell. Yeah. But yeah. It was amazing. It, I had broken free from the multi-level marketing thing of my own making and of his, of whatever. Mm -hmm. I had mm -hmm. finally left the multi-level marketing company. Amen. Oh, it was rough, and but it was great. And then he died. <laughs> what? Yes. He died? Yes. When, how, wait, what, so what's that okay. all about? Isn't that crazy? So he, he, he just laid it on the line for me and I was able to move on for the first time I moved on and we became friends. Right. We like legitimate friends. I had no, I had, I met my husband. Like there was no weirdness. I, okay. Then he met this woman that he fell madly in love with. She fell madly in love with him. She's lovely. He they had a baby and he was, the baby was that she was six months old or something. And he was bathing her and he dropped out of a heart of a heart something. The baby's fine. I was going to say what happened to the baby. She was home. The wife was home. Oh. Thank God. He wow. just, he dropped dead and, and he was an athlete and he had some congenital heart thing that just went bonkers. And, oh and anyway, the point is he, so he, I was given this great gift and, uh, you yeah. know, and his, yeah. and, but so all this to say the multi-level marketing, um, pull is so strong in a per, on a personal level on a, a national uh, on a psych yes. psychological level that sometimes and who knows when the bubble is burst but man i am so grateful that so and i think that that's what's you know gonna make it's just amazing it's also the way that people the i mean so like you had to go through the pain of him telling you that for you to be free and and basically you just had to cut your losses you had invested whatever amount of time and energy and effort whatever which is the only way everybody anybody gets out of a multi-level marketing thing which is that at some point they have to say okay there is no end user it's uh, you know i have to cut my losses and move on but the people who really suffer are the ones who just keep doubling down who just keep thinking if i can just work harder if i can just you know then i'll level up it's it's this way that we you know, you, you have to figure out in life how you're going to level up. Mm. And hopefully you have a, 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 an environment, a family, a, a community that teaches you a way to level up that doesn't hurt you and doesn't hurt other people. But most people don't grow up with. No, any... it's a, a America, America, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So so you figure or or like also this other thing of like people don't even acknowledge that that 
that this is part of the goal in, in life is to level up. And so, so they don't really get any skills to do it. So you just do the thing that you've observed other people do, or that you've been taught to do by how to receive love. And you could just bang your head against that for your, and many people have oh. for your entire life oh. and never, ever get out of the pyramid scheme. scheme. Oh my you God. You have to be at the top of your own GD pyramid scheme. You really do. I mean, you know, you don't have to have a pyramid scheme, but you, if you do, you gotta be, you, you have to be at the top of it because, uh, Otherwise, you're just at the, you know, living and dying at the behest of whoever is at the top of that pyramid. So, so the, so the transformation of my life in the last year is from, and by the way, I don't put this on anybody else. Like this right. is an inside job. I did this to myself and I'm going to undo it to myself. Um, I lived my entire life with this false assumption that there was somebody over me who was going to take care of everything and make it all okay. And that my only job was to service that person and to not attend to whatever, not, not just not attend to not know, not have the first clue about myself. Right. That's. And when I think about being in theater school, I mean, that's that's the the (laughs) defining characteristic is you don't know one single thing about yourself. Um, and as we've said many times, and, and you're trying to figure out how to be another person and you don't even know who you are. It's just insane. It is insane. And I think I was, I'm right there with you. And then that's why like some of our guests who aren't there, I'm like, what, wait, how how did you, I mean, I would say on some level, everyone was there, but it was, the way the varying varying degrees and also the way in which they dealt with that schism right of who am i what's happening and i'm trying to please these teachers that are like Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. like at the whim of these teachers that don't Mm -hmm. that are doing their own thing they've got their own pyramid Mm -hmm. scheme going Mm -hmm. but some people managed to navigate that or appeared to navigate it right appeared Mm -hmm. might be a good word to to navigate seamlessly or but we were just in some ways I I don't know like I feel like I was just totally out of it which isn't which which to me is in some ways uh, some ways easier maybe that was just my defense mechanism than being in it and being like this is horrible 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 and having some kind of massive breakdown or becoming part of a religious cult like people did or you know, sleeping around. We all did. We all managed the pyramid so, scheme. <laughs> let me ask you something. The, when you first started having, remember when we were at Bacino or we were that, mm-hmm. wherever that place together, you, me and Russell, and you started, had a panic attack Yeah, and you didn't, and none of us knew what it was. And you right. were like, I'm going to die. I don't know how you, you, you just kept saying like, I don't know how else to say it, but I feel like I'm going to die. And then you'd go, <laughs> right. and, you'd, and you'd say like, I have to go outside and get some air. And you'd go outside and you get some air. And then you come back and be like, that didn't help. I still feel like I'm going to die. Um, is there any part of that that's related to this, what we're talking about in the sense that the feeling is I 
don't know who I am. Yes. I don't know who's in charge. Yep. I don't know where I'm going. I right. don't know what I'm doing. Right. Is that, is that, I think that was it. I think that that was it exactly. And I think that it was genetics on top of, of course, cause we're, you know, yeah. you and I know that that has, my parents were both suffered from, you know, mental illness in some way. And so, so it was genetics stacked on top of the college experience stacked up, which was insane stacked on top of the theater school college experience stacked on top of we were getting ready to graduate like we yeah. were getting closer to graduating and i had just been accepted to, to this crazy program on the east coast mm -hmm. where i was going to be directing hamlet as a 18 year old whatever 19 year old yeah. so so um but yes i think that's it i think i was like my body was just like in my brain were like what's happening i remember it was bacinos and it was um and Seinfeld was on. And I remember watching Seinfeld at the Bacinos and being like, I just don't feel, and now I know what it was. Like I was totally panicking and dissociating, but like, I, I couldn't, I didn't know what was happening. It never happened to me before. The body knows, man, the body knows. That's so, so amazing about your body. Your body will always tell you what's going on. Of course, it's really easy to ignore it and whatever, but you're, that's like the most beautiful built-in warning system. You're having a physical, I mean, because feelings are physical experience, I mean, physiological experiences, but we're just mostly not tra trained not to believe them or to invalidate them or to, you know, say it, it doesn't matter. That's, that's the one thing I can say that my kids or at least being exposed to this idea that no, of, of course you have feelings and there's no wrong feelings. Like I had this experience last night with, with one of my kids who was saying, it's a long story, but there was this big conflict. And one, one of, one of the kids said, I'm not going to do this plan that I said I was going to do because feelings override plans. And I said, Okay, now you're on, you, you, you've got yeah. half right. Right. <laughs> Feelings cannot be ignored and denied, but they also don't run the show. And it's also not up, you know, it's, you know, if, if you always just did what you absolutely oh my felt God. doing. And so it was, and he, you could tell there was like a light bulb going off of, oh, okay, so I can still have this feeling and do something different than the feeling is that's an amazing realization that they had like that's that's and that that they're exposed to that in in your household is a, a it's like a, a huge revelation compared to how i grew up and how yeah, we grew up it's like feelings aren't facts they're important like in therapy yesterday i was uh, on the phone i was talking i have this um this orthodox jewish male therapist yes <laughs> I love this. <laughs> and anyway, I love him. And he was saying, like, we, I was talking about this mortgage situation. You know, we were denied a mortgage yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But he was like, okay, well, all right. So I can see how you feel that way. And, um, well, what are you going to do today? And, you know, like, he just sweat. He was like, you can feel, let's process the feelings. But, like, you're not going to let the feeling run you for the rest of your, you could, but mm -hmm. like, 
their feelings. They come and go and like the impermanence. It helps to have an Orthodox Jewish therapist because he's really into impermanence yes. and that it just keeps moving. And look, there's problems with every Orthodoxy religion, you know, but, right, but the right. point is he's big on this, like, all right, well, what's next? You know, like, mm-hmm. okay, we've, we talked about this for half an hour. Like, what are you going to do? You got to do mm-hmm. the dishes, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, um, but your kids, that's amazing. That's amazing that they got it or that yeah. they started to, you know? Yeah. It makes me hopeful that of all the problems they're going to have in life, it may not be that one of their problems is that they're sitting at Bicino's at 19 and they say, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm doing. And I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to die. I don't. I think also probably a big part of that is like, you just never had an opportunity to truly feel safe. Right. In your whole entire life. And and you were at that age where you were beginning to get the idea that it was your job to make yourself feel safe. And you probably felt really ill-equipped to do that. I had no idea. I just thought, oh, I'm going to die now or I'm going to be in a mental institution for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and it's my job to fix it. And the, the quote, more adults in my life, my, you know, my parents have no idea. So like, I'm screwed, you know, nobody's minding the store. Right. Yeah. It's like my dad, you know, uh, the story about my dad that what's well, a story about me uh, that really exemplifies my, my childhood was he had, you know, he's big into boats. He had a houseboat and I, I would go to his house every other weekend. So usually if it, you know, between the months of like April and October, pretty much every time I was at his house, we were going on the boat and it was a big drink fest and he would invite a bunch of people and, and it, they would all get drunk and I would drive the boat. Oh my God. When I was like nine and 10 years old. You was, were driving the boat. I was driving the boat. And usually the way that it would happen is somebody would be driving and I'd be bored because I'm the only kid and I don't drink alcohol <laughs> and I'm walking, walking around, like looking for something to do. So I go up to the, you know, where they're driving and they say, you want to take the wheel? And I take the wheel and they're drunk. So they, you know, wander off. And my, my dad told the story of, you know, he's one of these nights and he's going, he's laughing it up with his friends. And then he goes, who's driving this boat? And it was me. Oh, and that was, I, that was my job. I mean, I didn't know anything about myself, but the one thing I knew was that everything was my responsibility. <laughs> you know, like it was my job to drive the boat. It was my job to make sure that I didn't interrupt anybody from doing whatever it was they were going to do. It was my job to keep my feelings to myself. I mean, just a recipe for like oh, insecurity, anxiety, and depression. Who's driving the boat? Who's that's driving like, the boat? Yeah. That's like an amazing uh, title, you know? Yeah. Who's driving the boat? Yeah, Gina, sure, right? Gina was, yeah as a child. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today we have a special treat for you a hilarious, wonderful uh, comic 
and actress, comic actress and comic and actress, uh, Jen Kober. She's, she's brilliant. She works all around, I mean, you know, when you could, she works all around the country. She had plans for a world tour and, um, she's been on a bajillion shows, the purge, all kinds of currently, I think on the purge, Mm -hmm. which I have to, is the purge about, uh, anarchic society yes. and it's okay. also it's really really scary it's actually really and it and it and it and it it's very reminiscent of what could happen at any moment in our country so okay i will not be watching that sorry to you jen cover she's <laughs> maybe a, she you could put a little watch it Maybe she could put a little clip on YouTube so we can watch just her, just her part. Yeah, but she's she's very, very funny, funny lady on, on the podcast today. So enjoy Jen Cober. I just washed other people's underwear. That's what I did. Jen oh, Cobra. wow. Uh, so anyway, congratulations. <laughs> Hello. You survived theater school. I did survive theater school. And are you better for it or what? I mean, you know, I don't regret anything I've ever done in life. So I guess I'm better for it. It certainly taught me how I um, don't want to proceed in my life. Uh, Ooh, <laughs> tell know. us about that. Please, oh, please tell that. us. Well, because, I mean, I felt like when I got there, um, I, my com- my interest has always been comedy. I've always been uh, into into you know, uh, sketch stuff, improv stuff, stand up. Um, and of course, you know, wanted to be a comedic actress, right? Like, you know, Holland Taylor or Sarah Catherine Paulson. Yes. Two of my loves. Um, you know, just how funny they are and how not just funny, but like depth of funny. And, Mm -hmm. and so that's what I wanted to do. And that was my whole sort of you know, idea when I got there, when I was talking to all the admissions people, you know, I'm, t- you know, they, they ask you that question in the interview, you know, like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I was like, on a fucking sitcom with a show, like, just like Roseanne, like, this is my plan. I have, you mm-hmm. know, this is my goal. And, and they, they seemed very like, oh, that's wonderful. She really sees herself doing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think my class was the first class where they started accepting fat girls because there were two fat, three three fat girls in my year and there were no other fat girls in that whole fucking school. And mm-hmm. so every, so we, there was one of us in each section and, oh, um, God. and oh. they, and then cut us one by one and let them one fat girl graduated. And it was very funny. Uh, and, and, and she's a fantastic actress, but ended up a playwright. So it's very funny that, she, you know, yeah. um, and I have no idea what happened to the other fat girl who got cut first. God bless her, uh, wherever she might fucking be. But the thing is, is that, um, it, you know, it was so I got there and everybody seemed very like this is, you know, like very accepting of me in the admissions process. And then when I got there and saw what it was, I felt like they just wanted me to they wanted to strip everything of me. They didn't want me mm-hmm. doing stand up. They didn't want me doing sketch. They didn't want me no, no outside stuff. Right. You know what I mean? You're gonna and they wanted to turn me into this this bot what? of acting. Like I felt like it was it was very generic. I thought it was very washed out. I thought it was very you know they wanted they 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 kept saying the phrase that they wanted to take me back to neutral. And I'm like, bitch, I'm not neutral. There's nothing neutral fucking about me. There's nothing uh, in me that 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 says that what you like it wasn't you know you know when you have a bad habit or something that needs to be stripped away and brought back 
Like I get that. I had a lot of tricks, you know, being when you do comedy, there's tricks. There's there's a little Rolodex of things you can do that are going to get a laugh, you know, repeating things and 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 things like that. And and I I knew all of those tricks and I was very good at them. And I understand them wanting to, you know, pull that back and and get me into something that was more organic and more natural. But that's not what it felt like. It felt like they were just trying to like pull away everything that was me and and make me into this this sort of neutral actress, which isn't what I wanted to do. It, and, and they kept casting me in these terrible... Like, what? Like, I what? More what were you in? I was in a production of The Birds in a workshop, in a fucking classroom. It was like a Greek... Aristophanes. Yes. Yeah, it was awful. It was painful. It was awful. And it was directed by Rob Chambers, who was one of the most incredibly talented directors that that school ever fucking produced. He was fantastic. I still know that cat to this day. I hang out with him. He's a great fucking director, but, but, but we're doing the birds as, <laughs> as like a fucking workshop. Like, you know, Bella is sitting in the oh, front God. fucking row asleep because yeah. the room was so hot with heat <laughs> because it was the middle of the fucking winter and we're dressed in leotards like Bert. I had like a phallus, like a beak that looked like a penis on my face for this fucking show and i played i was the king of the birds and i played it like danny fucking devito i was like i'm the king of the birds like i I was they hated me they hated me so much they didn't understand anything i was doing and they weren't ready for you as a fucking bird like who looks at me and says yep bird like it's just i don't understand so it was it was annoying for me to be there because i didn't feel like they understood who I was. I didn't feel like they wanted to understand who I was. I don't think feel like they wanted me to bring me to what I was doing. And that felt um, very stifling and confusing. And I wasn't a happy cat when I was there. Mm. Well, so it's a good thing you didn't stay. But I would, <laughs> I, would, I would say, I mean, this whole concept of neutral, I mean, who's neutral? And that's boring in any case. Of course, so of course yes. It's, this to me sounds like there's one idea of neutral and it's maybe you don't have any type of a discernible accent and you don't, I think one of the things that Boz and I are learning about is they didn't totally value people who knew themselves. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. They didn't want you to know yourself. They wanted to tell you who you were. And I didn't like that at all. And I certainly didn't um, adhere to that very well. I mean, I got kicked out after third year. I like which I didn't think they did guarantee you're supposed to get from three to four. Yeah. They were like, you got to go. I I was, I I was not happy. I mean, I just was not happy. And I was telling it to everyone who would fucking listen. And they were like, okay, now you're starting to like deter people from their work. You're distracting, whatever. Um, But I I just, and, and I also did not enjoy um, what was his fucking name? I'm not going to remember his name now. He, he did not enjoy me and I did not enjoy him. And I told him that I was like, who the fuck are you? You're a teacher in Chicago at an acting school. What the, if you knew anything about acting fucker, I'd know your name from TV. <laughs> like, go the fuck, you know what I mean? I, I'd, I'd have you in my head from Broadway. I'd know who the fuck you were. You are a little man with a little power and you really want to wield it at me and that didn't go very well for me i'm sure in the i was also not a fan of uh ooh, that voice teacher bit she oh, also yeah. goes like a bag of dicks yeah. a big bag of dicks yeah she was an awful human being to me yeah. and listen this is the best story ever 
this is the best story ever. We did, I don't know if you remember this, guys, because maybe you were in the audience of it, but we did a show. God, I'm not even going to remember the name of it. There's no way I will. I've done way too many drugs. But the <laughs> but the premise of the show, it was it was like Middle Eastern based. Like we oh, were we were oh, terrorists. No. We were like oh, no. we oh, took no. the audience hostage. We like I went remember. into the hall where people were waiting to get into the play, and we would zip tie their hands and I put remember. bags over their heads and drag them into the fucking room. <laughs> I had to put a bag on Bella Itkin's fucking head and drag this old bitch into a room to see a play. I'm like, this is not going to go well for me. I'm <laughs> shocked. I, I, I can't the believe they did that. Piece. And it, I'm like, this is my, like, this is my life's work. This is what I'm, I'm here to study work that I want to do for the rest of my life. And you are putting me with this per like it was, I couldn't, yeah. I call, I literally called, remember calling my parents and being like, you need your money back. You need to start asking for your money back. Yes. These people are fucking me. Like it just wasn't, it was bad production after bad production after bad production. And it wasn't, it wasn't fun. It, there was nothing enjoyable. I used to enjoy acting. I used to like my job. I felt like the whole time I was there, I hated going to acting class. I despised it. I'm like, this is what I'm here to do. And I don't like doing it. So it was, wow. it was a, an experience like that for me. And P.S. I have never since leaving there had a terrible experiences like the ones I had there. Like, yeah, that is right. not, I, I'm like, maybe this is just indicative of what it is. Maybe I just didn't have a clear picture of what theater would be. And I didn't know what acting was going to entail. And then I'm like, Oh no, uh, they're just really fucking bad at it. And it's not even where it was. It's, it's over on, on a different street. I think it's down on Dickens. It's like, or Racine. It's like Racine. really, it's a whole thing. And when I saw what they had, I was very upset. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. had some kind of maze of two buildings fused together with like staircases I could never figure out. Yeah, no, yeah, right. yeah. It was mouse trap game, and 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 <laughs> you know, like we were performing in classrooms. They have black box theaters, and they have a beautiful right. main stage, and they have you know all of this. It's a whole building now, and I'm like, oh my god, this is the education I would have wanted had it been available in the nineties. It, yeah. it was just a timing thing. They weren't ready for you. They, we, we, we've gone over ad nauseum, how many just like cultural institutional major basic problems there were. And I think they are, they have taken like a lot the of steps. Fact that there were no people of color. Right. Exactly. Uh, women were treated. I mean, like, yeah. Can, yeah. I ask, can I ask a question before I forget to ask it? Sure. Yes. Okay. So the, you know that attitude of of like you were able to say to I don't like you and I don't I don't and who basically how did that were you were you um able to be were you raised to be able to speak that because I think a lot of us wanted to but not a not a none of us you know said that you know what you. it was it was that I wasn't necessarily raised to I mean certainly you know I'm I'm not ever one to hold my tongue but but. I certainly would have shown deference to L. I mean, I didn't speak to anyone else that way. The problem, the thing was, I didn't respect his opinion. I'd heard him speak about things. I'd heard him critique things. And I thought, you don't know what you're talking. Like, that's not, I don't feel that way. That's not. So because I didn't respect his opinion, right. Whether it was like mine or not. I mean, there were, there were certainly people that I, I differed from, you know, like Joe, it's not like me and Joe Slowick were fucking best friends, but, but I respected the man as, as an artist. I respected uh, his, his very, uh, calm way of speaking with me. Even when we disagreed, I appreciated that he was, you know, willing to take the time to let me know where he was coming from and why he thought that and, and what his 
you know, what his vision was for me and, and to understand that. And even if it wasn't like mine, I could appreciate it. I could respect it. I didn't. Right. But mm -hmm. everything said rubbed me the wrong fucking way. And, mm -hmm. and at the time he was being very, uh, acerbic with me and I just wasn't going to have it. Like I, I felt like I had nothing to lose. I oh, felt, I felt like I kind it. of saw the writing on the wall. Like clearly you guys don't fucking yeah. know what to do with me in this, you know, and, and I was ready to go on my own anyway. Did you stay in Not Chicago or did you leave right I away? I did stay in Chicago. I went to Columbia, uh, there in Chicago and I got trained by, you know, the guys that were running second city at the time, mm -hmm. uh, Jim Ziviak and Marty DeMott and, and all those guys. And it was, a th I, I wish I'd gone there from the beginning. I mean, yeah. to be honest, like when I got there, I was like, who the, why didn't anybody tell me this was going on? Like I got a degree in comedy there. Like I, it was yeah. fantastic. I was writing sketches and in a, in a group and, and doing stand up classes and writing monologues. And like, it, I, I was like, it, it, the difference was night and day and it was so much more inviting. And, you know, I, I thought that the, this, there were a couple of people that had gotten kicked out of my first year class um, that had gone to Columbia. And so now as, as fourth years, you know, as seniors we're meeting up again and I'm like, and they're like, yeah, isn't this better? I'm like, holy shit. Why didn't you tell me? You know? So it was, it was so it, much better of a program for me. It seems like maybe one of the differences there is, I mean, the thing about DePaul is everybody took themselves extremely seriously, including all, most of the students, if not all of them. So it seems like one of the key differences is that Columbia was not so precious and it was really very focused on getting you to the next step, getting you they to a job. They wanted you to be a working actor. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. because these were guys from Second City and from Improv Olympic that were that were training us, they they were training us to be in those shows, to be in a in a place that did that kind of work. And so uh -huh. that was so much more appealing to me. And like, what's funny is. In my actual life, once I got out of school and got out here and started, got an agent and a manager and started working, mm -hmm. I get cast in more drama than I ever do comedy. It's unbelievable to me how I'm on The Purge. I'm on like six episodes of The Purge. Really? I don't even watch that show because it's too fucking scary. And I wouldn't take the job until I made sure I didn't die on screen because I was like, I can't do that. I can't. I don't have that scariness in me. I don't need I can scare the shit out of myself. I really don't need you to help you, you know I'm it's not like I'm working in comedy all the time I do tons and tons and tons and tons of drama but that is because I'm and the reason I'm able to do that is because I'm so comfortable with myself because I know that like the the emotion the the organicness of it is just going to come from me because I've had a life and I'm, right. I know how to call on the things I need to call on, you know, to, to work out a script. And I did lots of what, well, one thing that they did do at, um, at Columbia for me that was really important was, um, script and like text analysis, like, mm -hmm. like the, you know, here's what the lines say. And if you do the, the, 
scene reading the lines, it'll be fine. But like, that's not how people talk. And that's not how, how really, how real things go. And, and watching, watching speech patterns. And they had us, they had us watch episodes of shit. And then you would, while you're looking at the script, so you can see what actors are doing while with what, with the words that are on the page and then how they end up saying them. And you're like, Oh shit. I'd have never thought to do that with that because of the way it's written. But look what this person did. They brought it to fucking life because they said it the way people say it, because they reacted to this word over here or whatever that was. Columbia really, um, Marty DeMott in particular really did a lot of that with me that resonated, that, that really helped me to figure out what it was to, to act, to take on someone else, to, to be a messenger of, of these words to, to audiences, you know? Yeah. Go ahead. ahead. No, I was just, I was just going to say that the, the only, the thing about the, um, the transition to actually working, there was no emphasis when we went to theater school about what was going to happen after, other than if Jane Alderman thought you were cute, there was maybe hope for you to audition for something. And even if you audition for it, you may not know what the hell you're doing. So it sounds like Columbia really prepared you to work. Like you they said, did. they That's did. But, they, but I feel like they prepared me to work in a different way because they prepared me to, um, First of all, they encouraged us to work with each other. <clears throat> Excuse me. And two of the people that were in my class are on Saturday Night Live right now. So, you know, there's, there's, they taught you how to work with each other and how, you know, there, the, there was that common space at, uh, at DePaul, the pit, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That kind of, you know, sunken in living room that we all gathered in. And I always remember it being everyone was in their, their movement clothes and everyone was, you know, unwrapping their sandwiches out of parchment paper and eating their little salads from Lincoln Park Foods and, and just, you know, there was chatter. There was this, that was the, you know, the, at Columbia, because it was a, school of the arts and not just an acting conservatory you'd go into that common area and there was a corner over here where they're playing guitar and writing music together and there's a corner over here where they're all brainstorming ideas for their script and there's a corner over here where they're you know they're improvising stuff and trying to figure out you know a new game to play in their show and whatever and it was so alive and it was so loud and somebody was playing music and somebody you know what i mean and we were all eating together and high-fiving and it was like a fucking party and did you end up going to second city after you I did. I took some Second City um, classes. I ended up, um, I had auditioned for Second City at the Big Stinkin' Improv Festival that was happening in Austin. Okay. uh, In like 98-ish. And um, I got picked up by Disney. So uh, Walt Disney World used in Florida used to have uh, a a downtown Disney, which Uh was like an adult. You know, there were nightclubs and whatever, whatever. Um, and the kids could be there till 6 p.m. And then the kids had to go and it was just adults and stuff. Um, and they had a comedy club on that. It was called Pleasure Island was the name of the little, mm-hmm. all the nightclubs and stuff. And um, they had a, a, a comedy club called the Comedy Warehouse that did improv style shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway? The audience yells stuff out. We just make yeah. stuff up right there. And we did. I, they picked me up and I did five shows a night, five nights a week. Wow. Three years. Wow. Just get funny or someone will be funny on top of you. So because that was so intense and so all the time and you're making the whole fucking thing up and you're working with people that have been doing this and are fucking really good at it. So you really start stepping up your game and it just, 
that was the best thing that could have, that was the best training I ever got. That, that was, was your grad school. That was boot camp. That was all of it. Yeah. And I had gotten into grad school. I was going to go um, to the University of Florida in Gainesville. They wanted me to run their uh, theater strike force, which was a huge uh, improv group that they have. I mean, literally, uh, I taught there the summer before I went to Disney because um, I was going to go to school there. So I went that summer semester to get used to it and check out Gainesville and whatever. And I taught in a stadium. That's how many people were in my class. We had, there were like 400 kids in the theater strike force thing. There were oh 40,000 <gasps> students there and 400 of them wanted to be in the comedy group. So I taught in the stadium. That's amazing. Bullhorn. I had to divide them all up. It was, it was a oh. lot, but I fucking loved it. It was great. They were also into it and they were all at different levels. And so I had like a little team of elites that I had kind of be the team leaders for these people that didn't know what they were doing, whatever. I set up a whole new fucking system there. It was ready to go. And then Disney hired me. Uh, in August. And I was like, okay, not going to school. I'm going to go work. They, they offered me a job. And um, I got out of debt. I bought a car. 9-11 happened. And I took that car and got the fuck out. I left. <laughs> so, I see. I, see. Well, I was like, I don't want to be in Florida if the world ends. I um, competed in speech in high school. And uh, two of the girls from another school who I adored, they were so funny. They did a duet of um, that Christopher Durang play, um, um, Baby in the Bathwater. And they did, they did a scene from that for, to compete in speech with. And I thought they were the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And of course that made me like not talk to them because we were competition. But then, but then one of them was like, I just got into DePaul. And I was like, what? Cause I, I, you know, been looking at schools and whatever. And that was one of the schools and she had gotten in, her name was Maureen Tempa and she had gotten in, but was a year older than us. So, and then her um, duet partner was Susan Bennett. You know, okay. yeah. So, yeah. so uh, Mo and Susan were were duet partners, and Mo went on to DePaul. Susan and I were still in in high school, and then, and we became friends because we both wanted to go to this school, and uh, we ended up driving because to to college together because she lived in Louisiana and so did I, and my mom was like, "I'm taking you." So. <laughs> So my mother drove us to college together and Maureen had already been there for a year and we all lived in Seton Hall together. And, um, and it was, it was great. It was great. I love that first semester of it was really good. I'd never lived away from home. I was in Chicago. I was with my two friends. We were just doing whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. It hadn't gotten cold yet. It was great. It was really, mm -hmm. really good. And that was the year that um, Clinton got elected, right? So at the mm -hmm. end of my first year, at the end of 90, and I had voted for Bush, like my daddy told me to. Isn't that fucked Ooh, up? That's how long ago it was. That was my, my first presidential election I voted in was Clinton v. Bush, and I voted for Bush. Thank God Clinton won. But I remember being outside uh, the night that Clinton won uh, in Chicago, and um, Betsy Hamilton was there, right? You remember Betsy? Oh, of yeah. course. Betsy's there and she comes outside and it starts and she's like, we won, we won. And I didn't realize we was Clinton. So I was like, yay. Right? And, then, and then it started to snow right there for the, it was the first snow of the wow. season. And I was like, I'd never really seen snow like that. And I was like, oh my, it was snowing. And I thought we'd elected George Bush again. And it was <laughs> Oh my God. Such a happy time for me. <laughs> Do you have any uh, theatrical funny people in your family? I mean, my mother would tell you that she's funny. My dad thinks he's funny. 
Um, but no. The answer's no. <laughs> no, yeah, no. It's you. No. It's me. You got there on your own. Yes. And who are your comedy heroes? I mean, Carol Burnett, Lily Tomlin, Madeline Kahn, mm. uh, Gilda Radner. Um, I love stand-up uh, wise. I love Louis Black. I love Ron White. I loved George Carlin. I mean, yeah. you know, just the <clears throat> people that I'll never ever get to work with because most of them are dead. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I got I've done like four projects with John Goodman, and I love him. He's fantastic. Um, he doesn't ever remember who I am. I have to keep, I introduced my, it's like 50 first dates with this guy. (laughs) No, we did. I mean, we did. I remember I drove you to, no, okay. That's fine. It's fine. We, I mean, we did four episodes. No. Okay. It's, it's good. It's fine. (laughs) Jen, how did, how did you end up in, um, good old Los Angeles? Well, um, I don't know if you remember uh, or heard the stories from back before you guys got to the theater school, but they used to take fourth year students to New York and put you in New York and you did your whole thing in New York and whatever. And as things started to change and as the sort of business of television and, and movies and stuff did start to move to Los Angeles, my year, my class was the first class that they took to Los Angeles instead of to New York. So, and I'm, I've, I enjoy New York when I'm there. I never want, I was never one of those drama kids that was like, get me to New York. I've got to be in New York. I'm going to be on Broadway. That was never me. I always wanted to be on television. That was always my medium. I sat three inches from a TV my entire life. And that was the medium I was going to be on. Yeah. So once I started kind of seeing that, oh my, even my class is going to LA, right? That that's the, the sort of West was the, was the way to go. Um, I I first moved to uh, San Francisco um, from Louisiana. I was in Louisiana doing uh, morning radio. I was the morning DJ on a country station, which was the number one station in my state for both of the years I was there. Um, and it was it was one of those great jobs. I loved it. I could be myself. And because I had come onto the radio show as a guest as myself first. And then they gave me the radio show. I had my own name on the radio. A lot of these radio guys are, have, you know, these I'm Ron Hart coming to you from, you know, that's not his name. (laughs) Ron Dulovic or some shit like that. You know what I mean? Like, but he gave himself a radio name. And so he didn't really have to be known as himself. He could kind of have some anonymity, but because I came on the radio as myself first, and then they gave me the show. So I'm me on this radio station in this small town, it's this country radio station that literally every hick in their truck is listening to all the time. So I ran this little town for a, for a good three or four years. I mean, I had the radio show. I had a, I, I had a cable TV. I was doing standup at a bar in a big theater and I would have a camera crew come in and record it and play it on the cable TV station like every night of the week. So I was just, you I were the mayor. The you were the mayor of yeah, that town. Yeah. And, and it was fantastic. It was the, the people there were super inviting to me. They were super welcoming to me. Nobody cared that I was gay. Nobody cared that I was talking about weed. Nobody cared that I was uh, cutting my hair short. Like it was, it was, everybody was just cool with me. They just liked me. And so they, I think they really opened themselves up to something that maybe they wouldn't have if I had come in screaming, 
I'm a big gay lesbian and I'm going to do comedy. Like, if I, right. you know, right. I think, but because they kind of knew me and I'd been on the radio and I talked to them and so many of them went to school. I went to, because I finished my degree there in that little town too. So okay. I was there for two years of college and then started this radio station thing. So it was, it was a lot of, of me in that town and people, everyone knew me. I couldn't go and I couldn't pay for a meal if I wanted to. Like it was, it was really great. And so I was kind of enjoying being this big fish in this little pond. And it's very, very uh, comfortable. It's very, yeah. it's very yeah. cheap. I'm, I had a three bedroom, two bath house. And I think I was paying $550 a month oh my God. in mortgage. I owned the fucking thing. Like it wasn't, wow. it wasn't rent. So it was just really, really easy to be there. And then uh, the hurricanes came. Hurricane Rita came and and rinsed everything I had away. Like I had water. Uh, only like three streets in my town flooded, and I lived between them. So my whole house was was just full of water, and I couldn't stay. And I had just done some shows at the casino. They have casinos in my town, and I had just done a show with Sinbad. Sinbad had come to town, mm-hmm. and because I was the radio DJ, he had come on the radio to like promote his show. And I kept teasing him that he was on the country radio station, so he better, you know, hick it up, right? And he just <laughs> he just went with it. And we had great chemistry and stuff. And he said, man, come to my show tonight and introduce me. And I was like, what? Yeah, come to my show tonight and introduce me. It's going to be fun. Come on, Jen. Come on, Jen. I was like, all right, man, I'll come, I'll come introduce you. So <clears throat> I got on stage and, you know, I did like 20 minutes of material before I introduced him. And I killed it. Oh. And he got up and was like, damn. <laughs> and his first 10 minutes were about how funny I was. And, and wow. everybody was cheering him and screaming for him and loving on me. And it was just great. And after the show, he was like, you you, you got to get out of this town. You're bigger than this town. What are you doing? And I was like, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't like this, you know, whatever. And he said, um, listen, I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to get you into the San Francisco comedy competition and you're going to go out there and you're going to win that. And then they're going to know who you are. That's what I did. I went this way. This Robin Williams, Ellen DeGeneres finished second to me. You know, all these people had done this comedy competition that I'd never heard of and had no way to get myself into The, the deadline was up, whatever. Sinbad makes a phone call to the guy who runs the contest, gets me into the contest. I go to San Francisco for a week. I came in second place and I just, wow. I just stayed. Um, and I stayed in San Francisco for about a year. And then um, all my friends that had moved to L.A., a lot of my friends from the Comedy Warehouse in, in Orlando have since moved to L.A. now. <clears throat> and they're in L.A. And um, they were all living in a building together, like a Melrose Place kind of situation, pool in the middle, apartment mm-hmm. all around. Uh, they called it the Comedy Commune. And somebody was moving out and there was going to be an opening. And my friend was like, you've got it. Come on. You, now is the time. This is it. This is it. You can get this apartment. Blah, blah, blah. So I did it. I just made the move to L.A. And because I was living in a building of people that I knew, I felt really comfortable. And I felt like, you know, you're not, not like alone in a big city where I don't know anybody. I felt perfectly at home. I was constantly hanging out with friends. And we were doing this new thing. We were all in this new place together. And mm-hmm. so that made a huge difference for me. And... Um, I started doing stand up at the clubs and immediately got noticed by a manager. And then he got me in with an agency and then, you know, we switched agencies and now we're with this, you know, it's, it's just what it is. And, and, and things have really gone well. I mean, I, I'm on one episode of almost everything. (laughs) (laughs) That's great for your residuals. So thank God for residuals. (laughs) Thank God for residuals. Right. So you are. It sounds to me like you went from being 
horrif- horrified and depressed at the theater school to having the exact uh, career that you wanted. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there were people there at that theater school that were helpful to me. I don't want to paint everyone with a terrible brush. Phyllis uh, can do no wrong. In my book, that woman should be anointed and healed and risen yes. up. I loved me some Phyllis. Um I just felt like she was, uh, Betsy was very, very good to me, always in my corner. Very, um, she was the one that was like, you know, we didn't take fat girls before and we took fat girls in your class. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't even know that was a fucking thing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I, mean I didn't know it was a thing. It was, yeah. it was so... <clears throat> And and that's why she wanted me to do well. She was like, I was the one that was like, we got to let, they, they're, people are, are of all different shapes. And, you know, so when I knew that she fought to get me in and when I, you know, could feel how supportive she always was of me, um, you know, it, it, it helped. I mean, it, it's what kept me there was yeah. Phyllis and Betsy. <clears throat> uh and, and everyone else really, I was, I, I was very difficult for me. Yeah. Aside from the horrible, barbaric nature of the idea that they didn't accept fat girls, like, wh- why? Why not? Why? why? I, don't, I don't know. It what's, was. What's and, then when I got, and then when I got there, I couldn't have had more conversations about how I needed to lose weight. I was oh like, what? God. Oh, really? Do you know how many more parts you'd be right for? Do you know how much more we could do with your casting if you were just thinner? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm, this is the size I've been my whole life. I was never, I wasn't one of those skinny girls that got fat in college. I've always been a big person. Always, always, always. And so for me to get there and be told you wanted me to lose weight, like I'm not, I'm not going to be this. I'm not, even if I lost weight, you're, I'm still going to be the chunkiest bitch in the room. Like I'm not going to be this skinny little ingenue. So why wouldn't I just embrace what I am and use that? And that's what I felt so, um, so much friction about was, you know, they did not know what to do with me. They, they just didn't. And, and, you know, I'm, I was 20 years old and and they're casting me as old women because I'm heavy Mm -hmm. and I'm like, (laughs) okay, I'm never going to play. This is your, how are you helping me with this? Like it was, I'm an old fucking woman. I'm like, what is happening right now? Like this is, no one's going to cast me this way. And I get it. You know, we have to do what we have with what we have and, and take it as a challenge and blah, 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 blah. And I did. And it was fine. But, but I just didn't feel like I got to express anything while I right. was there. I felt like all I was told was bring it down. You are, you are too much. You are too loud. You are too talkative. You are too funny. You are too, uh, too joyful. You are too, wh- whatever I was, all the things that I was, and it was too much for them. And, uh, you know, luckily we all figured it out before, um, you know, before I stabbed anybody, but <laughs> well, yeah, was, yeah. they're lost. They're lost. And yeah, I was I also, I was going to say that, you know, it's a denial of who people are in their essence yeah. at a very young age. And it's yeah. really harmful. Yeah. And I am, I'm obsessed with the concept of resilience and your resiliency is stunning. Well, like, you know what it was? Stunning. It was that I had spent my entire life up until then being told something else 
Like my parents were always like, you're so pretty. You're so smart. We love that you talk. Keep talking. You know what I mean? Like everything in me was like, I'm a badass bitch. And then I got here and they're like, you know, trying to knock me down. And I get it. There is a, certainly there is a going from, oh, I'm a big shit in my little town to like, oh, there are also other talented people in the world. And maybe I'm not the best at what I do. And, and believe me, when I, I, I have never felt it more when I did that San Francisco comedy competition. I thought, oh, this is it. I'm going to win this competition. I'm going to be, it's going to be, right? And the first night of the competition, I walked in and it's, it's like 20 comedians in the first round. And I saw the kid that ended up winning. And the minute I saw him, I was like, ah, fuck, I can't do that. That's, he's better than me at this. He's better at this than me. I don't, whew, I don't have that. I don't have what he has. I have a lot of sizzle and not a lot of steak. I got to get some fucking steak. He has got steak and sizzle and look how fucking amazing it is. I was, I mean, I was a competitive person. I am number one in, I am the star of my movie and to have seen him do that and, and had it in me to go, Oh shit, I better, I better get better at this. I need to raise my game up. This is the level I'm playing at now. And to have seen that and, and, and he was the nicest guy. We, we talked, we, you know what I mean? To have seen it and known and, and wanted to aspire to something else was such a different feeling than getting to DePaul and being told, you know, you're not as great as you think you are. And we want you to change and completely deny all the things you think you are. Right. And, and here's some Shakespeare to help. Right. Yeah. And Imagine. Oh, go ahead. Buncey. I was just going to say, uh, Gina likes to talk about, we were talking today earlier about leveling up. So you were able to level up when you saw this fellow comedian. And I Absolutely. feel like at the theater school, they were like trying to get everyone to level down, like push down, like go to yeah. the yeah. biggest denominator. Yeah. And the, the people, I mean, listen, I have kept up with the people in my class. There are probably three of us that work. Three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that you will ever see on anything in anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple more that work, uh, you know, in some sort of teaching capacity for it, or, you know, Susan does a ton and ton of voiceovers. Um, you know, it, it's, it's just truth. Um, Karen mold is, you know, uh, a musician touring all over the world and, and doing her thing, but not really what we studied though. She is quite the actress in her show. Uh, <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's not a lot of people are just doing acting as their job yeah. right now, even though that's what we all went to school for. Yeah. So, and the ones that are that are working from my class, they they aren't the ones that were getting all the parts. They aren't the ones that were. I'm like, you looked over this poor bitch for three fucking mm-hmm. years and she's mm-hmm. on a TV show now. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so <clears throat> clearly what they valued and what they saw as as you know being so castable and so good and so great yeah that bitch had three babies and has never acted again like so it 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 just isn't it isn't all about that and so to have come out of it and realized oh not even a lot of us were even gonna stick with this and do it Mm -hmm. it a whole different spin on what we were doing at the time anyway Thank God you had this sense of yourself before you went there, because I think the more common story is 
people who were told that they were shit their whole lives. That's why they became actors in any case, because like somebody accept me. And then they get so much worse when they're impressionable and being told. And I, I, I'm kind of in that category. Like I, it was really easy for me to believe that I was not castable. And then that was the experience that I had at DePaul, that they never cast me in anything except for like just throwing throwing me a scrap of I had to be cast in something and it has taken me 25 years to get to here where I'm like actually I'm really not going to wait for somebody to tell me it's okay I'm just going to do it on my own but I would have liked to have done this 25 years ago I agree I agree can I tell you a great story um there was a kid in my class first year uh his name was John Launius he was a skinny bony tall string being of a kid with a flat top and he was from St. Louis, Missouri and he was there to be an actor and he was, Oh, he was. And, but he was a weird kid. He was like into martial arts and uh, talked a lot about Zen things. He was a weird kid. Yeah. And you know, we're all 18 year olds in, in theater school first, first semester away. And, he was a, he was a, but Phyllis paired us together to, you know how she would always have you massage each other before yes. to warm up your voice. Right. And this dude laid hands on me and I'm not kidding. You. I was like, Oh, right. Fucking there. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm going to give you 30 minutes to cut that shit out. Oh, <laughs> this is so good. Right. He just had the best, strongest hands and he had such a sweet, kind, deep kind of man voice and he would just you know say just relax and you know he would miss and i was like oh my god i love this so every time we had to be paired up i always wanted to be his partner and then you know we start talking and i realize he's not really that weird he's just into some stuff i'm not into and we become friends and pretty soon he and i are having all our meals together and and blah 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 and um but the rest of the section still thinks he's a weirdo. And they're like, why are you, what are you hanging out with the weird kid? You know, weird kid. And I was like, he's a nice guy. You guys need to stop. He's nice. You know, like whatever. I'm, I'm that person. I, I have to love yeah. it. And so um, then I went for a weekend home uh, to, to Louisiana. It was homecoming at my high school. And I was so homesick and just wanted to go home just for the weekend. So I flew back to Louisiana and to go to a football game. And, you know, everyone there was like, oh, how's Chicago? Right. So I was like, again, I'm a big little fish. So happy to be there. And I come back to school on Monday and John is gone. He apparently, I had missed Friday's classes because I was on a plane to get home for the football game. And apparently during Friday's voice class, he, he had some kind of meltdown, some kind of you know, crack up realization, whatever, and got really angry and told everybody he was leaving and he couldn't and just left school. And I never saw him again. I never oh. saw this kid again. And everybody, you know, they were like, oh, he he packed up his whole dormer. He left school. He went back to St. Louis. Like by the time I got there, he was just gone. I never saw him again. Cut to um, February of this year. I get a Facebook message from a kid who's like, um, listen, you, you're probably not going to ever remember me, but you were super nice to me at a time when I needed somebody to be super nice to me. And I've never forgotten you. And I'm a producer and I've watched your stuff. A friend of mine sent me one of your stories, had no idea you and I knew each other. And this kid now produces my show. He's, 
taking me. We we were supposed to be in production in Europe this summer, wow. filming my special. And this this cat is like now now we are he and wow. I love it. I love it so much. It. He's gonna produce my one hour special, but because he because I was nice to him back when we were kids in college and he and and what he ended up telling me was he realized while I was gone when he when everybody you know that one day where he was just so isolated and nobody oh. was really talking to him and everything he said he realized that he just wasn't good enough to be an actor in that school and it, everything in his head had told him he was going to be an actor his whole life and when oh. he realized he wasn't good enough it just hit him so hard and he just wanted to leave and he just left it all and he was like I, you know it, it was there were no cell phones there was no email there was no in fact I remember walking to the computer lab. Remember that was in the library yes. theater school. I remember walking to the computer lab with my um, roommate then, um, Kelly Bernie. Remember Kelly Bernie? I so I walk with her to the library and I'm like, why are we going to the library? She goes, I have to check in the computer lab. I sent somebody an email. I'm like, oh, what? She's like an email. You can send messages through the computer. I was like, that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard of. Why would anyone, you're such a nerd. Oh my God. Why are you such a nerd? And I, I was like, there's a post office, bitch. Mail somebody a letter. What are you fucking talking about? And she's like, no, but it's like immediate. You can, and I was like, that sounds fucking stupid. Like, I was just no clue, right? There, there was no way for me to find him. There was no Google. There was no nothing. I didn't know yeah. how to find him. And I just never... You know, I I guess every once in a while I'd wonder what whatever happened to that guy. You know, but um, that's but yeah, amazing. I and 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 he's and that and P.S. He went on to like he was a, a martial arts trainer. He that's what he became, and he trained Steven Seagal. Like he, wow. he went on to do that, and then got into the behind the scenes and production stuff, and now is running a media company, Vidzu Media, and, and and was like, "What can I do? How can we work together? How can I make us this a project?" And I was like, "Well, I'd like to shoot a special." He's like, "Done. Where do you want to shoot it?" I was like, "Europe." He's like, "All right, let's make." I mean, like just everything wow. I want, he gets me. And, and why did you pick Europe as the place you wanted to film your special? Well, because I wanted to um, talk about Trump and I thought that would be most successful there mm-hmm. this summer. Um, clearly, I don't need to do that anymore. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. I, I unfollowed him on Twitter and I don't think I've ever been so fucking happy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, but I but I and I had always wanted to go to Europe and he was and, and what I wanted to do was. um go to different towns and, and shoot it um, like in, in bars. Right. So I'm doing a show uh of different places, you know, maybe in, in some little tiny town in Austria, we end up in like a church where I'm doing a show for older people. Maybe there's a bar where it's a bunch of young, you know, so all these different locations and me having to kind of conform to audiences that may not speak my language or may not, um, you know, be my, my ideal demographic and to kind of, wow. uh, what, and, and to eat and visit all of the cool things over there, yeah. make that kind of B roll funny stuff of like, I am in the, you know, the toy train capital of, of Germany and I'm eating a pretzel. So this is what, you know, <laughs> right. Right. Is that all just postponed until next summer? Yeah. We're, we just had to scrap it all because they're Europe has done what, what so many, have wanted to do which is just say no to america yeah stay out they have just banned us all together and um smart i could fly to croatia and then ground trip it through to europe if i wanted to but 
that seems like a lot. That seems like a lot. So, um, yeah, so we decided to postpone. And uh, one of the people who is going to do, who's going to be my, basically my line producer on that shoot was Misty Springer. Do you remember Misty? Oh, yes. oh yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, she and I have stayed in touch and she. Wow. Uh, so there's still, there's like theater school friends. There's like- theater school people all over the place for me, of course. It, it, it wasn't the people. I, I was. Right. perfectly popular i was perfectly liked nobody it, there was no it was it was the, the system staff. it was the system and the staff the whole, you know and i think there was another lady there a tall little string bean of a thing um patrice eggleston her so she was was trying right like she she tried to be nice she tried to kind of put me back on track a, a few times and i was going through a bunch of health shit when i was in school too and so she was you know aligning my solar plexes and doing reiki and shit on me you know stuff i had no idea polarity therapy right like lining up my pressure points and shit and i didn't know what it was but i knew she burned an incense i liked while she did it and played some calming music so i laid on a fucking table like i didn't i didn't know i didn't even know what i was getting when i was getting it there was something that she said to me, though, that has always stuck with me. And she said to me, you learn to swim in the winter and ice skate in the summer. And, and I, really, I really took that in. Like, you, you learn to do things while you're not doing them. And so, so even though I, I felt like, oh, I'm, I'm withering on this vine. I'm not doing stand-up. I'm not doing improv. I'm not doing sketch, the things I want to be doing. And I felt like that was just not going to be there for me when I wanted it again. And it was the exact opposite. I had so much to say and so much to offer. And I'd been thinking and mulling it over in my head so much coming up with different characters and different funny quirks and all of these things because I wasn't getting to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that was, it was right there for me when I, when I was ready to do it. And so, so thank you, um, Patrice. Thank you, Patrice, for that lovely um, lesson because that happened with me. What we're what we've learned, uh, what I've finally realized after talking to you is, it was really these five white guys who were making all of the old white men. It was, there was a lot of old white men at that school in general. I mean, Phyllis was the only staff member of color for a very long. She might still. Be, I don't know. I'm not there. But like, it was, it, it was ridiculous to me to have a class of. I mean, what are there, 20 people in each section, three sections, you know, 60 pe- a class of 60 people. And there were three black kids like mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. I, and I mean, all, tons of women and, and some of these people. I was like, really? You thought this guy was going to be an actor? Come on. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, like this kid can't even get his ass out of bed. Yeah, he can't this shower. Right. being stoned what the fu- though i will say that was one of the most wonderful things that happened to me at the paul was my discovery of marijuana <laughs> oh my dear what a what a that that turned out to be a lifelong relationship actually i still talk to mary jane well you had you had to you had to find her somewhere thank goodness i did and karen mold got me uh she and uh her friend danielle Dee what was Dee's? Yes, Danielle was was her girlfriend, but she we hung out with this girl, um, Dodie. Dee Dodie. 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 Okay, so we hung out with Dodie. She was like a stage manager, right? Yeah. So Dodie and Karen were living together at the time. We were first years, and Dodie had a car because she lived in Chicago. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, cause this first year's none of us had cars. Right. So she had this car and she and Karen were going to come pick me up and we were going to go for a drive. It was very, I was like, okay. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, wasn't allowed to ride in the car with teenagers when I was a kid. Like, this was this was breaking a lot of rules on a lot of levels. And when right. I got in the car, they we were listening to Liz Fair. That's yeah. how old this long ago this was. Liz Fair and um, she handed. They were smoke. I got in the car and I was like, "Oh God, what? Ugh, what did we run over a skunk? What's happening?" And they're like, "No, here." And she hands me a joint, and just as I inhaled. Ani DeFranco starts. Pl- I've never heard her. Oh, I've never God. heard Ani DeFranco in my life. I inhaled and uh, both hands comes on the fucking car stereo. And I was like, oh my. Like, I felt like I understood everything all at once with this one inhale. And then this music came on that just was like singing my pain. How does this woman know me? What the fuck is happening right now? And, um, and that was when Karen Mould told me she was bisexual. And I was like, what? what? Like I, I was, I wasn't out to anybody. I wasn't even out to the girl I was making out with. Like nobody, this was not something I talked about. And so I got, I a lot happened to me on that car ride. It was a very, wow. very uh, that's gotta be several car rides and I've amalgamated it all into this one car ride. But in my head, that's what happened. And, um, Karen was like, no, we had lunch, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, but it would have been around this time. And she said, uh, Oh uh, yeah, that is what happened. You, I felt like you got in that car, one person and you got out of that car, a different person. And I was like, that's absolutely true. And then, you know, from there she was like, let's do some acid. Let's do some mushrooms. Let's, you know, and I loved and adored all of those things while I was in Chicago and, and didn't have any problem going to John Jenkins movement to music class fucked up on mushrooms and he was like this this is it you're doing it you're this is you're doing exactly what i'm telling you and i'm like i'm fucked up dude i bet i am i don't have control of my legs <laughs> i'm not driving this bus anymore like so so, so that's got to be the opening scene in the movie of your life is that car ride. And I'll write it for you. <laughs> just, just oh, me, man. Miles Davis, and a fucking Keith and a floor. I love wow. it. I love it. Jen, this has been fantastic. Amazing. Thank amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me unleash all that goodness. Yes. And where can people find you? I have a website, jencober.com, J-E-N-K-O-B-E-R.com. It'll tell you. Uh, there's some clips there. You can see my little TV clips, um, some stories, some stand-up on there. Uh, and, of course, when the world opens back up, the tour schedule will also be there. I'm doing some online stuff, a couple of Zoom shows here and there, okay. um, a lot of corporate Christmas shows where I, like, pop into their Christmas party and do 15 minutes of non-covid related laughter so that we can all forget what's going on it's um but yeah so so those are those are happening but it's not the same yeah well it'll get back i mean it has to eventually you're you're (laughs) totally unstoppable and undeniable so it'll it'll get back yeah oh thank you hopefully so now now you can recognize my face yeah now now you're burned into my brain now now I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. 
follow us on Instagram at Undeniable Writers or on Twitter at Undeniable W-R-I-T-1. That's Undeniable Write without the E-1. Thanks.